dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, dynamic voices for a diverse church powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's up, brother? Man, I'm feeling good. We are about to go and record another Pass the Mic live. I love these events. Try to get in front of people, meet them, have a fun conversation. So I'm I'm pumped. And I have to be honest, I'm partial when it's in the South. I'm always partial when we can go to a Southern city. So Atlanta, we coming for you Friday, July 27th at Cornerstone Church. Man, shout out to Cornerstone Church for having us and hosting us and letting us use their venue. Uh, We have some special guests for you, some surprises. I'll let one of the cats out of the bag. Miss Amina Brown is going to be with us, the poet laureate, the queen with the pen. (laughs) If you have not heard her do spoken word, Man, she's going to be blessing you guys with an exclusive. You can't get anywhere else. So it's an exclusive for PTM. So y'all need to come out. You can get your tickets right now at PassTheMicLive.com. We don't want you to miss it. And we know it's going to be a little hot. It's okay. We got y'all. It's in the evening. Y'all going to be good. But if you're coming from a northern city like some of the people in our staff, you got to get ready. The Southern heat is a little bit different. We've been telling you all about this Southern heat. It's a different brand of heat. It kind of slaps you. It'll beat you up if you're not ready. So come with your guard up. The humidity, come on now. You got to dress appropriate now. I know y'all going to be looking good, but you got to dress like it's going to be hot outside. Okay. You might, you might you sweat might a little bit. Two different outfits. That's what I got to do. Wow. So Jamar, I ain't got it like that. You know, everybody ain't able. <laughs> it's because I sweat, bro. <laughs> but, yeah, listen, me too. But everybody ain't able with, you know, he the man to myth the legend. I ain't saying you got to do all that. But Jamar, you know, speaking of heat, man, it's been fascinating to watch over the past about two years since the 2016 presidential election. We've seen a shift in American Christianity. And I call it a shift, but the reality is some people think it's a drift. And there are a lot of people who are listening to this episode, a lot of people who follow us on Pastor Mike and The Witness who have been on this journey. Um, Some would call it a quiet exodus. Other people would call it a a non-quiet, loud exodus. And there are a lot of people that are shifting, a lot of people that are moving away. And shift is my word, but you know, we can talk about it, shift or drift. But some people think it's a drift. Some people think there is a movement of people that are pushing away from the core tenets of orthodoxy and rejecting the faith. And so we wanted to talk about that, man, because I think there's a lot of people who are facing that critique. There are a lot of people who are enduring that on a daily basis and wrestling with what they believe, why they believe it. And so we want to put it all on the table. And we'll even be honest about where we've shifted or we've drifted or whatever you want to call it. So Jamar, what do you think about this, man? Have you seen this this shift or drift? And what would you call it? Would you call it a, a shift? Would you call it a drift? How, how do you characterize it? If it was just me, I would call it a movement. <laughs> I think, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I, I think there's a wave of people who are feeling displaced right now in terms of the church or their relationship to whatever theological tribe they were in, whatever denomination they were in. And I wrote an article in response. There was a New York Times article by Campbell Robertson called Quiet Exodus. And it was talking about black people in white evangelical churches, like excusing themselves 
from those churches because uh, the election and, and the, the current president highlighted some some divisions that have always been there, but they were brought to the fore in this sort of political climate. And then I wrote a, a, a response um, just sort of building off of that called after the quiet after the quiet exodus, a wilderness wandering. And so I characterize it as a wilderness wandering because I think there are a number of folks, it's hard to quantify, but certainly within our circles with the witness and whatnot, there are a number of folks, black, white, and 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 other races and ethnicities who are are taking stock of what they believed, who they followed, and why. And seeing that maybe that what they assumed was always true about the Bible, about culture, about politics, maybe is more open to critique than they thought before. But yeah, they don't necessarily have a home yet. They haven't found another denomination, another fellowship, another church. And so a lot of times we're, we're just sort of looking around like, is there anybody else on this journey with me? And so I would call it a movement. But if you are in those places that that people have have taken an exit from you're looking at this like oh they're drifting away from sound teaching um so is it a shift or a drift i'd call it a movement or a shift it's fascinating because it really depends on which circle you're a part of because for you know some denominations especially those who are predominantly black and have black origins there hasn't been any sort of shift or drift I mean, they're just exactly where they were pre-election. Exactly. I mean, there's been some adjustment based upon rhetoric and certain things that they have to uh, maybe use with stronger language or critique. But the reality is a lot of people are, are have stayed the same. But most of us, there is some sort of proximity that we've had to maybe a Eurocentric or an Anglocentric approach to all the matters of Christian faith. So that includes the scriptures. Um, how we interpret certain passages, our political involvement, maybe even our, our economic views. I mean, so many different things. And it seems like, Jamar, what's hilarious is it is that the the bucket of things that is considered orthodoxy in those circles is expanding. Huh. So it's not just the fundamentals of the faith. It's not just the Nicene Creed. Like now we're expanding to all kinds of things. And so I'm like, man, so if you don't believe in just straight down the line capitalism, like, okay, that's a drift. Oh, yeah. That's unbiblical economic. You're like, whoa, like, okay. I mean, is there is there a way, is that a heaven or hell issue? Like, are we, I mean, is there a way that we can reason on this? Okay, well, if you don't believe this way, you don't agree with this approach. And I'm just sitting back, I'm like, man, well, I guess we've all drifted there because it seems like there's a very particular set of tenets that we have to agree upon that extend beyond just Christ and him crucified, right? Right. Well, I mean, here are some a couple of my sort of basic assumptions coming to this conversation. Uh, one is that right or wrong, white evangelicalism defines in terms of perceptions what a lot of people think about Christianity in America. It's, uh, white evangelicalism is the elephant in the room. Within that, there's the Southern Baptist Convention as the largest white evangelical denomination in the country. And obviously, we know Christianity, even just within the United States, is much bigger than that, right? Like we've got 
black Protestants, we've got uh, Latino evangelicals, we've got uh, Pentecostals, we've got lots of different traditions. Come on, Pentecostals. Come on, Charismatics. Come on. <laughs> all of it, right? right? We in here. And we're going to see a bunch of these folks from all different kinds of traditions in heaven. So it's not accurate, obviously, that, that white evangelical is white evangelicalism is American Christianity. That's not accurate, but the perception is there. And in terms of power, whether financial or political or even cultural clout, they do have a lot. Um, so that's that's one of the things that we're we're coming into this conversation with, at least I am. The second thing is the amazing difference between race relations now and even 40 to 50 years ago. Right, right. Yep. In a very short amount of time, we went from white Christians actively opposing the civil rights movement, which I say the civil rights movement, but when you break it down, people were saying, you know what? Black people should be able to go vote without the threat of violence. Like yeah. these are basic claims. Very basic. It's very simple. Citizen. I think we can agree on this. Yeah. And, and so we go from from a large contingent of Christians actively pushing back against that, a big mushy middle that either were undecided or they were advocates, but they didn't actually do much. And then a very small percentage of Christians uh, who were actually on the front lines, right? Like I'm not talking about sentiments. I'm like, they're on the marches. They're getting jailed. Yeah, you were actually like, there. Like, yeah, no, you were in the game. So, not like, oh, this is sad. Like, no, I was present. <laughs> that's, I showed that's what I'm saying. Yes, exactly. So we've gone from that to if you just trace 70s, 80s, 90s up to the present, right? Like 95, the SBC finally repents uh, of slavery and its, its racist origins 150 years after the denomination is formed because of you know a controversy over whether a missionary could be a slave owner and they said yes and they split from from northern baptist right uh you've got the promise keepers movement which had a lot of things going on but one of the yo promise keepers was booming back in the day man the 90s 90s, it was the thousands Uh, tens of thousands of of men it was a men's movement uh gathered in stadiums and and producing recordings and materials it was massive and a big part of their platform was racial reconciliation so you had black folks and white folks hugging each yep. other you know repenting yes. tears all of this and then you get to the 2000s and you've got you know quote unquote reformed rappers or christian hip hop and you've got this like this mm. new contingent of young. Okay, I see the timeline. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm trying, you know, so just to condense it, right, we've come a mighty long way in terms of uh, people getting together, but I think people mistook desegregation for integration. And those are mm. different things. Um, That's it, bro. <laughs> and then when you get something like a catalyst like the election, you came to see that. Well, our churches were desegregated, but they really weren't integrated in the sense that people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds actually had an equal voice in the church. But Jamar, what would you say are some of the issues and topics? Because if, you know, I think we've had it happen to us before. People have, you know, heard old sub, you know, sub attacks or sub tweets or just outright attacks. And they've said, you guys are wrong on these issues. And I, I think I've identified what the specific 
critique is, but what are some of these topics that are kind of the expanding bucket, so to speak, right. of orthodoxy that people say, you have to agree on this, and the Bible is clear on this, on these points? Because I think it's completely shifted over the past decade or a few decades, um, and it's maybe become even more stringent now than it was before. I, I don't know. Maybe right. maybe you have a different view on that. But what are some of these topics that people are really sensitive to you showing any sort of openness to critiquing? Well, first, I'll give a, another book recommendation. It's called The Moral Minority, The Evangelical Left in an Age of Conservatism. It's by David R. Swartz. I recently read it, and it was helpful because a lot of the same battles and debates over orthodoxy and who's right and who's wrong and who's being actual Christian. These are old debates. Uh, This particular book, Moral Minority, really only focuses on the post-war era, uh, maybe up to the 80s and 90s, so relatively recent history. But you can go way, 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 way back uh, to 16, 17, 1800s in America. And these same debates are happening. So first of all, there's nothing new under the sun in that sense. Uh, right, right. These debates are old, but I would say uh, they take on particular contours in different historical periods. So with the rise of the religious right in the 70s and 80s, what you had was a very politicized evangelical, and I should say a very partisan evangelicalism uh, that aligned itself not just with certain issues or values, but with a certain political party, in this case, the GOP. And so as you're talking about the expanding list of what makes one orthodox or not, you have to add some political issues in there. So for instance, in the 2016 election, a lot of evangelicals voted on three issues. They voted on um, a repeal of Roe v. Wade, so abortion. They voted on issues of gay marriage and, and, and sexual ethics, and they voted on choosing conservative Supreme Court nominees. And if someone not even necessarily disagrees with those, but if they want to expand that platform and say we should be looking in terms of politics at, at more dynamics, like, you know, are they protecting voting rights? Are they are they putting down um, attempts at gerrymandering? Are they uh, promoting affirmative action because groups are still uh, still have very unequal access to, to education and jobs like that? If we want to mm-hmm. expand that platform, all of a sudden you become unorthodox. You become well, liberal, I, whatever. And, and what's even, even more interesting about that is, is when we talk about specific policies, a huge point that people were talking to me about as far as white evangelical Christians and pastors was the re- repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Like people were talking Absolutely. about the ACA. Absolutely. And I was like, whoa, you know, I'm used to the other things, but they were going in on this. And I know some people may be personally affected or what have you, but certain things started to be entered into the equation. I'm like, what are we talking about here? So it was that. Then it was the education system. And I was like, great, we can talk about that. It's like, nah, but in a different way. And I'm like, whoa, so wait, so what you're saying is, oh, okay, well, maybe I misinterpreted. I'm like, man, where does all this stuff come from? Then you talk about the environment and creation care. And so I'm like, yo. Wow. And so I I thought we could at least, yeah, like I, I thought we could at least disagree on this stuff 
and it not be the stuff we die on the hill. Like, I'm not going to die on this hill in the sense of I'm not going to look at you and say you're a heretic because you're like, man, the, the ACA might help some people. Like, it might really, really help some people. And I care about that, you know, and it might really, really help my family, (laughs) which it did. So I'm just kind of sitting back like, oh, so I'm supposed to be guilty about this. You know, and I have friends who were dreamers. And when it came to issues of DACA, like there was a heavy push against that. And so I'm just sitting back. I'm like, wait a minute, my head's spinning because we got all these different things. And then I live in the South. And so just the reality is the reality. There are people who are very, very convinced about a dispensational view of the scriptures. And so anything related to Israel, I mean, I've, I've heard pastors call President Obama an anti-Semite. I mean, all kinds of crazy things. And so I've just sat back. I was like, whoa, this is like a lot of stuff. And then people would always say, this is, you. we can't have this. And I'm like, but this is like 15 things. So like, well, which is which? Like, how do you how do you establish the hierarchy? Right. And so it's been fascinating to see the expansion because I think people feel caught. And what's really being done is people are alienating like a, a more conservative theological group, are actually alienating questioners. Mm. And they're saying, oh, well, you're liberal or you're a Marxist or you're a social justice warrior or you want this or you want that. It's like, well, is there a way that we can account for some of this in our discussions? And maybe that would shape the way in which the discussion is had. And maybe possibly we could come to an alternate point of view or we could say, man, let's meet in the middle here. But compromise was pushed away and seen as a drift. And then people are like, okay, well, then we just going to walk out then. And I think now the church is like, oh, let's label these people. And it's like, you should have listened to them instead of labeling them, right? Absolutely. And it, it, they, it, that's the issue, right? They become matters of orthodoxy. And I think there was somewhere in the Bible that said, if you add to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel, right? So like, if you yep. add to the simple fact that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and then but, but you put on top of that, well, you have to basically align with this political platform or have this particular view, that's an issue, <laughs> That's yep. taking that's taking away from the gospel, which means it's not the gospel at all. And I can definitely hear some people that says, well, that's that's going on on both sides, on the left and the right, if you want to use those terms. Absolutely, it is. Well, well, here's here. Well, whoa, whoa, Jamar. I, I don't I don't know about that. And here's what I mean when I say I don't know about that. Are there are is there hypocrisy on all sides of a political ideology? You know, we come to politically, you know, ideological perspectives. Are there is there hypocrisy? Absolutely. I, I don't know though that there is the proximity to Christian power that exists on both sides. Do both sides have the same proximity? That's right. That's right. Do do eighty one percent of is eighty one percent of evangelicals or however many percent of people like this? It wasn't eighty one percent. Was what's the better number? Sixty percent, fifty percent. I mean, you still you still got issues there. Okay, half is bad. And so it's like, are, are the eighty one percent or the fifty percent or the sixty percent? However, you define in that number, are are they different? I think they are in a sense that we're talking about a greater percentage here. We're talking about a particular proximity. And as you mentioned earlier, there's a proximity not just to politicians, not just to presidents, but also to power and privilege that is impacting the way Christianity is viewed on a mass scale. Some of that you can't get out of. But some of the stuff that we're known for, 
we don't even need to be known for. Mm. It ain't even necessary. Mm. It's just our preference that is telling us this. And what's interesting about it is the more you expand the bucket of orthodoxy, the more you end up justifying things based upon your own personal good intentions that are actually abhorrent. I was talking to my wife about this earlier, this whole reality that you know it's fascinating when people are talking about race and people are talking about racism and white supremacy, and they appeal to their own good intentions. Huh. And they do this all the time. They point to their own good intentions. They say, um, well, I don't have any racism in my family. This is These are my credentials. And we talked about this before on the show. And what's fascinating is I, I was reading this, this post on Instagram and a woman named Miriam who actually listens to the, Miriam actually listens to the show. So shout out to her. She posted this quote from a South African pastor. I want to read this because I was, this really synthesized for me how we got Trump. Um, listen to this. It says, American preachers have a task more difficult perhaps than those faced by us under South Africa's apartheid or Christians under communism. We had obvious evils to engage. You have to unwrap your culture from years of red, white, and blue myth. Wow. Listen to this. You have to expose and confront the great disconnect between kindness, compassion, and caring of most American people and the ruthless way American power is experienced directly and indirectly by the poor of the earth. This was the part that got me. You have to help good people see how they have let their institutions do their sinning for Ooh. them. Ooh. This is how we got Trump. Wow. Because what we have is a lot of people who are resting on the laurels of good intentions and unafraid to challenge fellow believers, unafraid to challenge family. Yes, unafraid to challenge congregants on how they have let their good intentions be a cloak. Well, this is my personal conviction. And so I had no one else to vote for. I had to vote for this person. Wait, wait, wait. So, So what you're telling me is you've accepted all this clear, apparent, abhorrent, evil behavior because, and you've used your good intentions as a cloak to say, this is why I did this. You're like, wait, oh, no, yeah. like you can't justify yourself based upon your goodness. And I think as a, there's a legion of people, there's a movement of people who are just simply saying, no, you can't do that. You can't get away with that. And then they turn around and call us the people who are shifting and drifting. And you're just like, <laughs> wait a second. Like, I think that's you, actually. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I've no, said too much. Go it, ahead, it's, it's right on point. And for folks who want sort of a, a, a granular, detailed view of what you're talking about, there was an article that came out July 21st that is entitled um, Judgment Days. And it's talking about a small Alabama town and an evangelical congregation and how they are sort of making meaning in terms of morality with this particular president, whom a vast majority of the congregation supported. So that's by Stephanie McCrumman in the Washington Post. It's called Judgment Days. That's a really helpful sort of human level view of what you're talking about. But I think part of the bigger issue here is that many white evangelicals have a sense of they're being persecuted. They have a sense that they are this... um, scrappy minority that the nation has turned against and they are fighting with every amount of faith and ingenuity that they have 
for good Christian principles. The problem is. <laughs> and I think people, genu- there are a lot of people who genuinely believe yes. that. And there are a lot of people who are mocked for their faith. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. Sure. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But continue. But I think, yeah, yeah. And, and, and to just expand on that point, I think there are a lot of Christians in other places in the world who have experienced a lot worse persecution than people talking bad about you. Without a doubt. <laughs> you know? yep. so it, there's levels to this, okay? We can ignore A lot of levels, levels to this. Um, and, and if you break it down economically and now certainly, well, I would, I would argue for a long time, even politically, they're not a minority in the sense of power. It's not like they've been marginalized in terms of voice. Have they been critiqued? Have they been critiqued? Yes. Have they been... Um, even insulted at times, absolutely. Uh, and anyone who who would insult uh, basic religious belief, like the fact that one believes in in a god or something like that, I mean that affects all of us to a degree. But absolutely, the what what a lot of folks are not accounting for, especially within evangelicalism, is the marriage between Christianity and nationalism that is toxic. Whoa. Uh-oh. Absolutely toxic. Uh-oh. Uh, that quote you read, you're right, they wrapped in red, white, and blue. So now yeah. orthodoxy is not biblical orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is patriotism, however defined. Hmm. Right? So that's why. So you got to stand for the yeah, anthem. Exactly. And you know, if you stood for the anthem... <laughs> What y'all kneeling for, huh? Exactly. Y'all kneeling like no, you should respect the flag because see, <laughs> when the when the when the when the Hebrew boys was getting ready to get thrown, they was respecting uh-huh, the anyway. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah, some of the exegesis doesn't quite add up there, but but when you equate the United States of America with God's chosen nation and God's chosen people, and then furthermore, when you equate true or authentic American with white, don't you see how that can be a problem? Of course. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it extends though, Jamar, to the way in which we view scripture, which I think is at the core root of this, Mm. right? We have been taught in institutions and by proxy through denominations and churches that there are, there is an unimpeachable way to view certain passages of the scripture. Like there's just one way, there's the only one approach that you can take. There's only one conclusion that you can come to. There's only one way that you can look at this. And it seems to be steeped in a, in a very Euro-Anglo interpretation of the scripture. Now, listen, I get it. We have to have boundaries. We have to have some sort of foundation because we recognize that the, we can't make the scripture say whatever we want it to say. Like I get that 100% as someone who preaches the gospel on a regular, I can't make scripture say whatever I want it to say. What I do recognize though, is that we've been taught to view passages through certain lenses. And we've been taught to view interpretations through certain lenses that are only preferential. They're not biblical. They're not spiritual. They're only preferential. And so Hmm. we approach the text and we don't look at ourselves with any sort of introspection. Am I approaching this as someone from the third world? Am I approaching this as someone from the margins? Am I approaching this as someone who may be a little bit disenfranchised and vulnerable? And what tends to happen is very 
well-off, middle-class Americans, Christian Americans, approach the text and then argue you down Mm -hmm. and say, you can't think anything other than what I think. And you're like, wait a second. We're coming from one perspective here. Is there a way that we can expand and see that different people are viewing these texts in different ways? Not so that we would necessarily come to different orthodox conclusions, but that we would maybe examine that the text includes and centers people that are more than just white Christian Americans. Can we <laughs> say that? So like, is that possible? Um, you know what? This has a very long history. There's a great book by historian Mark Knoll, N-O-L-L, called The Civil War as a Theological Crisis. And he talks about the fact that whether you were Union or Confederate, you both thought God was on your side during the Civil War. And s- <laughs> Bruh. That's not like them sports teams, man. Yeah. Yo, we thank God for winning. You know what I'm saying? Like, you like, wait, so God on both yeah, 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 Like, really. or neither? Like, Wait, oh, it's, it's just like that, except with half a million dead. But um, that was it, like the, the question that that Noel is is getting at is like, how can very devoted Christians fight for Union and Confederate and both have the same Bible, but come to such different conclusions to the point that they would be willing to die over these issues and interpretations, right? And basically, one of the points that he makes is that it boils down to a very American and Western kind of approach to biblical interpretation, which particularly in the United States was highly individualistic, highly democratic in the sense that it was of the people. You didn't need to have an elite like the priest or even the pastor to interpret it for you. You could just sit down with your Bible and according to, quote, a plain reading of the text, you could make sense of it. And so in in terms of the Civil War, uh, a lot of abolitionists had trouble refuting Southern theologians because they were able to make biblical arguments that seemed so much more straightforward, so much clearer, because clearly the Old Testament, even parts of the New Testament, talk about slavery. There's no one single passage, mm-hmm. chapter, and verse that you can point to that outright condemns slavery in the way that would have made it clear that, that um, you shouldn't practice it. And so they were struggling, abolitionists, uh, to to make their biblical case, even though it was there, right? Like we all agree 150 years later, I hope most of us <laughs> agree that the biblical case. Bro, you don't never know these days, man. I'm, I'm, I ain't taking right, nothing for granted. Like the bigger point here, and I think part of the movement, people in this wilderness wandering, they're looking for communities that can help interpret scripture more holistically because what we've been taught about interpreting scripture as this highly personal individualistic thing sort of detached from 2000 years of church history maybe it's rooted in you know 40 or 50 years of the moral majority but that's not exactly comprehensive and so folks are like it, this problem goes way deeper than just like race or racism it goes to the f- fundamental way that we understand Christianity and how we do so or whether we even do so in community. Because to, ex- to the extent that we do not attempt to interpret and understand Scripture within a diverse community, then our understanding of God and the Scriptures will be impoverished. 
And you know what what really to to kind of bring this home, Jamar, what really resonates with me is just the reality that our personal story is kind of filled with um a sense of pain and also a sense of betrayal as well, because we feel as though people literally omitted large portions <laughs> of church history and of our history to teach us a selective view of the gospel, Christianity, the Bible our position in America, all the above. And so it's littered with a lot of pain and betrayal. And so thankfully, the Lord redeems that. Like the Lord extends grace and mercy. There's healing that we're all undergoing in um, in many different ways. And I know there are a lot of people that would resonate with that. But what drives and motivates me to not care as much about the little, you know, tit for tat rhetoric and the subtweets is I don't want my children in a generation of young people coming after us to go through the same exact thing that we went through. Like I want to have the humility enough to repent for my mistakes, my failures, so that they don't have to go through things in a personal sense, in a familial sense, in a church community sense. But on a broader body of Christ sense, do we really want our children and generations after us to go through the same sort of betrayal? What a lot of people are seeing is that we have been We have been hidden from our history. Our history has been separated from us. And we haven't been taught some of our heroes and sheroes. We haven't been taught that there's a different way that people approach certain passages. We haven't been taught our history and biblical history and the history of the church and the history of blackness in America and the history of people of color from a standpoint that centers us and not centers the majority culture. And people don't realize that now we're just recovering. We're adding race into the equation to say it matters as we talk about the church, as we talk about history, as we talk about Christianity, as we talk about the Bible. And people are like, well, you're focusing on it too much. Well, maybe it's that it matters more Hmm. than you think. Maybe it's that you've underestimated the reality. And when you add it to the equation, it seems like it's a huge part of the equation, maybe because it is. And so what I think we have to take a step back and say is, are people really shifting and drifting for the sake of shifting and drifting? Or are we simply saying we're trying to recover the lost Mm. years that we will never get back from when you did not tell us about our history and why did you not tell us? I don't want my kids to, to, to come to that conclusion. I don't want the people I'm discipling to get in that space. I don't want that. You know, I want this next generation and how we pass the gospel, the, the faith on to them to be completely different, to be healthy, to be holistic. And that's my heart. And I hope people will see that not as like, oh, okay, they're just, they're just drifting. They want to make the Bible say whatever they want it to say. They want to blame this group of people. It's not even about that anymore. The reality of the matter is there's souls mm, at stake here. Yes, there's yes, lives yes. in the balance. Yes. That, I mean, that's, that's part of the, we had long conversations about what the name should be as we transition from ran but then the witness is is about that it's it's about being witnesses to a watching world many of whom are not christians right and and what message about our savior christ are we conveying to them what kind of witnesses are we being and if it's this narrow very partisan kind of religion then souls are at stake and that's what drives and motivates me too. So a lot of folks 
Um, I've seen a few people on social media basically making comments like, be on the lookout, beware, because there are people out there who are making a platform or a name for themselves purely by critiquing white evangelicalism. Where is this platform at? Like, where <laughs> is this platform at? And, and what I mean by platform is where's the money? Like, where's the money at? Like, I'm just I'm just curious. Like, where is it at? Because we would go there. <laughs> it don't exist. This, it doesn't. I mean, if anything, to to critique sort of the the dominant theological Christian strand in America has been very costly. Goodness. I mean, literally, right? Like, I mean, I like, think people when they say that they're just talking about Twitter. Like people, people, must be, like, people have extrapolated. This is what's funny. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We say believe black people when they say they've experienced racism. But it is hilarious to me how people will believe the entirety of the church has shifted towards social justice because of a few Twitter accounts, but will not believe any of the evidence that we give for systemic racism. You need the highest burden Uh of proof for, for believing that systemic racism is still an issue. But you believe that the entire church has shifted because a couple of people tweeted some things. Wow. What? Anyway. Say that. Say that. My goodness. Um, I don't even know what I was going to say, but that's a great point. Uh, My bad. I got all in the sauce, man. My bad. No, that was good. That's good. There's so many good points there. Um, But you're right. Like it's Nobody's gaining a platform with this. We're honestly concerned with the message of the gospel. And we think it's a lot bigger than it's been portrayed to be, whether in national news media or even in many of our churches, right? Like, and for me, a big shift, as we talk about shift and drift, a big shift came as I started studying history. And I can pinpoint a couple of moments. One was Ferguson. And as we're seeing images of a militarized police force uh, confronting unarmed protesters, who are mad that an unarmed black person, whatever the exact circumstances were, but it was shown that there were systemic issues with the police force over-policing this community. How did that happen? How did we get here? I found that historians were able to give that context, right? They were able to talk about restrictive covenants in terms of housing. They were able to talk about redlining. They were able to talk about the intentional formation of the black ghetto. Um, And that was helpful for me to make sense of what's happening in the 21st century. The other thing is I I had to, in studying history, come to grips with the costliness of making a stand for justice. Um, One book in particular was David Garrow's Bearing the Cross, which is a Pulitzer Prize winning autobiography of Martin Luther King Jr. And what I appreciated about his book, and there are many, many great biographies of King out there, but but what this book did for me in just this sort of particular space I was in is it humanized Dr. King. Um, I think for for many of us, King is, is this larger-than-life figure, uh, but he's not a real person, much less a Christian with doubts and struggles and, and growth and things like that. Not saying he was a perfect man by any means, but that's part of the picture of what makes him human and relatable. And when I saw that this man, who was the face of the civil rights movement for 13 years before he was killed for doing what he did, every time he stepped out and and did a speaking engagement or a march or a boycott or a rally, he expected he could be killed. He'd lived under the constant threat that his family might be in danger. He dealt with 
loads of criticism even before the social media age in writing, on news, from politicians, from, from everyday people who knew nothing about the context, right? And and what he had to sacrifice to do that, and not just him, the women of the movement, the grassroots activists whose names we'll never know, the people who were beaten, never who were know. fired from their jobs, who who lost uh, accounts or, or, or revenue somehow, uh, who were lynched and they never got justice. If they went through all of that to secure basic, highlight basic civil rights, like I should be able to go vote without being beaten or threatened, like a basic civil rights like that, if they went through all of that, how can I sit back and try to pursue safety and comfort and just have Twitter fingers and not put something, not 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 be willing to sacrifice something for the cause of justice? That changed me, yeah. and that shifted yeah. me, and I don't apologize for that. Man, that's good, brother. Man, I'm excited to hear more about this in The Color of Compromise, bro, coming out next year. I appreciate that shout out. Yeah, yeah man. just shameless um, plug, man. You know, y'all need to pre-order that. Because listen, yeah. hey, we trying to write these books, get it out there so that we can do more things with The Witness. Jamar can blow up. That's what we need, man. We need his voice in the public square. He's already, brother, I already been on CNN. Now we need to, listen, you already <laughs> been on CNN, okay? So we never know what's going to happen with Jamar. not done good. They, they, they ain't call a brother back in a minute, but whatever. They're waiting for the book to come out, bro. <laughs> But look, but listen, nah, man. go go ahead. Let me, let me say there's one last thing, right? It's so much bigger than race. It's so much deeper than race. And I think what people who feel a sense of displacement are seeing, and, and they may not be able to articulate it, they may not be able to put all the puzzle pieces together yet, but they sense it, they feel it in their spirit, in their souls, is that there's something deeply off trajectory about the way we do Christianity in America today. Not in every single circle, but in enough that 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 a lot of us are just reevaluating um, where we fit uh, and and what is truly biblical. And so when I say it's bigger than race, I mean uh, it goes to this sort of reflexive rubber stamp on free market capitalism, as if that's God's blessing. Ah, Jamar, you gonna right? stir it up at the end of the episode? I'm just saying. Look, we gotta we gotta we gotta put it's it true, out man. there. It's not just that. It's it's um, healthcare. It's immigration, education, it's education. Right? Like why economics, is it, healthcare, all economics? That, do people realize there are Christians in countries that practice a form of socialism, and they're still Christians? Ah, <sighs> Jamar, right? Jamar, Jamar, Jamar. I just, Jamar. I just like, like you don't have to want that. Just don't say people who do or, or, or who talk about it are not Christian. <laughs> like, that's all I'm saying. I'm just just a, just a little low bar right Listen, there. man. Yo, we got to talk about this at the live or something, man. Y'all okay. asking some questions about PTM, you know, about this at PTM Live in ATL. Uh, man, there's so much more we could, we could talk so about. We're going to cut it off right here because, man, we could just keep on going and going. But let us know your thoughts, man. What do you think? A shift or a drift? And if you think it's a drift, explain why. Like, give us some historical context. Give us some Bible. Like, tell us what's going on in your mind and in your opinion. But, you know, man, I think it I think it is a movement, man. I think you're right. It's not a shift or a drift. It's a movement. We got a lot of people with us.
Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can find me on Twitter. Did I just mess up my intro? No. <laughs> All right, let's run this back. Man, Bo's going to use Late. this, bro. Man, I ain't never, I, it's been years since I messed up that intro. All right, here we go. <laughs> 